this message, um, life and death, the theme of life and death in the book of Proverbs, uh, uh, we went through a series at Grace not too many months back on the book of Proverbs. And as you know, um, uh, one of the things that's true in Proverbs is that sometimes themes get treated all throughout the book, like rather than in, in just a sort of a developed extended paragraph. There is some of that too. But, but anyway, as we got towards the end of that series, it was uh, kind of tackling themes. And so that's what we're doing um, this morning. And uh, so I, I saw you've got a bunch of pages for notes in your, uh, in your bulletin. And so we're gonna start in Proverbs 12, but we're gonna fly over a bunch of different Proverbs and may not get to bear down on, on any of them individually as much as you might like. So I would encourage you uh, maybe to just take notes about those references and, and kind of accumulate those as you listen this morning. Uh, maybe go back and look at them individually a little bit later on uh, this afternoon. Uh, but we're talking about life and death uh, in the book of Proverbs this morning. And we're gonna start with Proverbs 12:28, which says, in the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. And the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. Now, of course, that's really good news, right? Because death is a great enemy. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 well, would tell us that death is the last enemy, the final enemy. Um, when we encounter that, right, when we experience that, and we have a loved one who is going through their final days, that would, that would seem to be, uh, in the eyes of a lot of people, uh, a, a kind of a final blow to a person's hopes and dreams. Uh, it's probably how the disciples felt on what we now call Good Friday. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that we, we call it Good Friday, and we have very good reasons to call it Good Friday. But on that first Friday, the disciples would not have called it good. They might have called it Crucifixion Friday. They might have called it the world's worst Friday. They might have called it uh, the world's worst day. They wouldn't have called it Good Friday. It seemed the death blow to all their hopes and dreams. And yet, right, this is the good news. God was at work in the midst of the world's worst day, taking it and making it into the world's best day. So there's a way beyond the reach of death, and Proverbs begins to sketch that out for us. It, it, yes, it awaits the New Testament to fill in the contours of what that looks like, but Proverbs begins to sketch that hope out for us. And the good news, right, we'll, we'll, kind, of, we'll kind of start right now where we'll end a little bit later on this morning, is that if you're in Christ, God is also about the business of taking your weakest day, right? That death due will one day lie cold on all of our brows if we're taken before the Lord returns. And on what will feel our weakest day, our worst day, our most infirm day, if you're in Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus cannot be taken from us even because of the enemy of death. So that's very good news, right? Paul lands there in Romans 8, and we'll get back there by the time the message is done. But there's more that Proverbs would have us to see before we wind up uh, making our way to the New Testament. So um, if you would, I'd like to open in, uh, in, in prayer as we turn now to three kind of critical themes on life and death in Proverbs. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, as we move in now to the investigation of your word and the 
and the uh, application of your word to our lives. I pray that you would give each of us here uh, receptive hearts um, that are eager to, to receive and to feast on your word, to find encouragement uh, where it is to be found, uh, perhaps to find um, warning where we may need to turn away from paths that lead to death. And I pray that we would be uh, strengthened as a result of our time together this morning. We commit this message to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have three key emphases and some application, okay? Three key points and then some application today. That's kind of where we're going. Uh, point number one is going to be that, that in Proverbs, and, and, and of course in the scriptures more broadly, but in the Proverbs, point number one is that when it concerns life and death, those entities represent both a kind of final outcome and a pathway to that final outcome. We, we probably tend to think more in terms of like the finality of death, but there's a path that leads to it as well and also a path that leads to life. So, so uh, outcome and pathway, that's point number one. Point number two will be that when it concerns life and death, there are both external and internal dimensions to both life and death. So life and death in, in the book of Proverbs and the scriptures more broadly have both external and internal dimensions. Okay, that's point number two. Point number three will be that Jesus answers all the needs of the first two points. Okay, so we've got um, uh, finality and pathway, point one. Internal, external, point two, Jesus answers all the needs of the first two points in point three. So first, the outcome and the pathway, okay? When you read the book of Proverbs, the, the book of Proverbs is fond of contrasting two ways of living. And, and, and it primarily contrasts those with the terms wisdom and folly, right? That's the primary contrast, wisdom and, and folly. Now, in a sense, in a sense, Life and death are the final outcomes of wisdom and folly, aren't they, right? Death is the final outcome of the fool's way. And life is the final outcome of the way of wisdom. There's also a sense in which life and death represent pathways in the here and now that take us closer to one or the other of those Destination. So we could talk about it, and Proverbs sometimes does talk about it. it it'll, it'll sometimes present it as the way of death and the way of life, or sometimes it will say, or and we, we can think in terms of the way to death and the way to life, right? There's a, a progress being made on one or the other of those paths. And, and the whole of the book of Proverbs is an, is an exhortation to its readers to make the wise choice, to make the choice that turns away from the path to death and embrace the path to life while we still have time to do that. Okay? Now, when we think of life and death, we probably most naturally think in terms of their final outcomes. So we think, for example, of the fact that the gospel brings the hope of eternal life, okay? There's, right, there's a, there's a, there, there's a foreverness to the hope of, of the gospel. When it comes to death, if, if, you've, if you've been to a funeral recently or you've lost a loved one recently, 
Um, it's very common, right, when we think of death to think in terms of graves and funerals and, and, and at least the end of this, this physical life. So um, Proverbs 11.7 says, When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. So, so there's, a, there's a finality, right? There's a finality to the hope that the wicked no longer has at the moment of, of physical death. And, and the finality of death is probably the aspect that we tend to fear, right? When it comes near our house, when it comes near our family, when it comes near our friend group, the finality is the part that we tend to fear. Some of you are acquainted with this grief. Some of you don't even, I don't know your stories, but maybe you've dealt with it in your close circle of, of family and friends recently, perhaps even currently, right? And, 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 and it's so good to be reminded that in Christ, death doesn't have the last word. But it does deserve our grief. You may remember Jesus in John 11 uh, at the, uh, after the death of Lazarus. Now, he, now it's fascinating. You know, just, this is going to be a footnote today, but, but it's fascinating that Jesus knows his intention is to raise Lazarus. And even as he goes about that intention, he confronts the death of Lazarus with grief and anger and tears. I don't do uh, pet peeves a whole lot. But sometimes, now, okay, funerals can be emotionally complex, and, and we, we, we've got to have a category for that. And, and especially for the believer, it, it, it is appropriate to think of a funeral as a homegoing celebration, right? A life well lived, a person now at peace in the presence of the Lord. That's, that's worth celebrating. But every once in a while, <clears throat> I will hear comments, and, and, and they're well-meaning, right? They're well-intended comments, but every once in a while, you know, in a context like that, I'll hear a comment. Somebody will say, you probably heard it before. Um, somebody will say something like, and, and they mean it to comfort, something like, uh, nothing is so natural as death and taxes. Well, I understand the point. Right when they went right, the best, the, the good intention behind that is, death and taxes are common, and and everybody faces them. Everybody pays taxes, and everybody dies. Okay, true enough so far as it goes. But when we think theologically, it's not true that death is natural. Okay, theologically speaking, death is common after the fall, but it is not natural. It is not the way that things are supposed to be. Death is a curse. Death is a judgment. Death is an indication that things in this world are not yet the way that they were meant to be. It's a reflection of our rebellion from which we need to be delivered. And in Christ, that hope abounds. So there's a finality, right, to both life and death. But, but, but life and death are also pathways, Right? They're pathways in the present moment that are moving in the direction of one or the other of those destinations. When it concerns death, if, if, if the finality of death is the part we fear, then the pathway to death 
is probably the part we tend to overlook, isn't it? So a couple more Proverbs for you. Uh, 14, 12 and 16.25, they both say the same thing. Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25 both state, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. This is a way, right? The way that seems right to man that leads to, this is a way that Proverbs 3.7, Proverbs 3.7 calls this way, the way of being wise in our own eyes, okay? Uh, the way that trusts our own sight more than God's. And when we live from the posture of that kind of autonomy, that kind of disposition to reject God's wisdom, right, we find that that's a pathway that actually has no wisdom at all. It, 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 to, to the self, it, seems, it, it perhaps seems wise, but it has no wisdom at all and instead puts us on the road marked for death. So there's a pathway of human sin and folly, overestimation, right, of one's own wisdom, lack of reliance on God that puts a person on a pathway to death. By contrast, by contrast, Proverbs 10:17 tells us that whoever heeds instruction Okay, and this would be, right, the, the wise instruction in, in this context from a parent to a child, but, but God's instruction, whoever heeds instruction is on what? It's on the path to life. Okay, so there's a finality, there's a, there's a pathway. Life and death reach into our present moments well before the day of final expiration. So dealing with uh, sickness, and succumbing to temptation. That's not the finality of death, but those are both expressions of the pathway of death, right? And things, on the other hand, like, uh, like repentance and humbling oneself before the word of God, that's not the end game of eternal life, but it's the path, it's an expression of the path to life, isn't it? Now, the reason that wisdom and folly as these respective paths of life and death, the reason they're so forcefully contrasted in the book of Proverbs is to indicate the urgency of clinging to the way of life. Right? The wisdom, sometimes it's personified in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is calling us away from the path of death while there is still time. So one of those passages where wisdom is personified is in Proverbs chapter 8. And in Proverbs 8, six, uh, not 16, sorry, 8.36, Wisdom, this personified wisdom of God cries out and says, all who hate me love death. All who hate me love death. All, all who reject God's wisdom in favor of their own uh, sort of, sort of self-purported wisdom, they're not actually moving, right, from folly to wisdom. They're, they're moving in the opposite direction from wisdom to folly. They're turning their back on wisdom turning their face towards folly, which puts themselves on the path to death. He goes so far as to say the one who does that loves death. Now, what produces these divergent ways of, of walking, right, these divergent paths, wisdom, folly, uh, life, death, what produces these divergent ways of walking is the heart. What does the heart love? That's the question. 
Does the heart love wisdom? Does it love folly? This is why Proverbs 4.23 tells us, this famous proverb, I'm sure many of you know it, it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Now, in the Bible, we, we sort of, uh, in, in, in popular terminology, we, we sort of use uh, terminology like head and heart to divide the emotions from, from the intellect. In biblical terminology, the heart controls the person. The heart is everything, right? Uh, uh, Intellect, um, uh, cognition, volition, feeling, it's all wrapped up in the heart. The heart is the fountain, biblically speaking, from which human behavior flows. So when Proverbs 18.21 says that both death and life are in the power of the tongue, we understand that our speech can serve either path, right? Our speech can serve the path of life or the path of death. Which path our speech serves is dictated by what our heart loves. If our heart loves wisdom, it will be reflected in our speech, right? On the path of life. If our heart loves folly, it will be reflected in this case in our speech, right? On the path that leads to death. So, So again, the question for everyone here, in this moment right now is which pathway will we embrace? Because both of those paths are going somewhere, right? It's, it's, they're not roads that lead to nowhere. They're going somewhere, somewhere specific. So that's point one, <clears throat> right? To, to, to life and death, there's both a final outcome and then a pathway that leads to one or the other of those outcomes. Point number two, life and death have both external and internal dimensions. There's, there, there, there's internal and external dimensions of both life and death. Let's think about death first. First, uh, when it comes to death, in the book of Proverbs, throughout the Bible more broadly, there are things like external attacks, right? So, so, so somebody gets cancer, they didn't go looking for that, right? That, that, that's, a, that's a form of external affliction, uh, there are also external lures, right, to temptation. Um, in, in many cases, lures to temptation that we didn't put there, and in many cases that we didn't go looking for. That's, right, those, are, those are not the final form of death, but they're expressions of death, and sometimes they attack us from the outside in. But death also advances internally. And this is seen in our attraction to the way of folly, right? Sometimes we express an internal attraction to the way of folly. In other words, it's not only the case that death draws near and attacks us externally, it does, but it is also sometimes the case that we choose to draw near and embrace the way of death to embrace the way of folly by placing our hope in its empty promises. When we trust the false promises of the way of foolishness, right, of some form of of temptation, that's not just death hovering over us, but death and foolishness expressing itself and working itself out from within us. There's a, uh, for for, for advance on the path of death to take place, right, in, in this sense, 
There's, there's got to be a, a sinking of the external and internal. There, there may be an external lure, right? We're thinking of temptation now. There may be an external lure, but if the heart is not poised to receive it, it won't have its effect. The, the, the heart, mu- you, see, you see what I'm saying? The heart must receive, it must embrace the foolish promise in order for there to be progress on the path of death. Proverbs um, one nineteen, just to give just to give one example, it's, it's talking about about greed. Proverbs one nineteen says that it, it that it's greed for unjust gain that takes away the life of its possessors. Greed for unjust gain that takes away the life of its possessors. Now there is an external lure in Proverbs one nineteen, unjust gain. Right, that's the that's the lure that's being talked about here. But if the heart, in the form of greed for unjust gain, is not attracted to that lure, the lure has no effect. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. All right. What about, what about, uh, so we're still, we're still thinking about uh, uh, dimensions of, 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 of death here. Um, what about a form of living that is not well integrated? Okay. It's not well integrated. Let me give you another example. This is from Proverbs 26, 24 to 26. This passage is talking about hypocritical speech. Hypocritical speech. Proverbs 26, 24 to 26 says, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. So there's kind of a two-facedness in speech, right? Um, uh, Some motives in speech that are being disguised in the company of others, that that, that the speaker maybe cares about their opinion. And the the Proverbs are warning, you know, don't don't believe that kind of of person. It's a a two-facedness. A different presentation of the person in public than there is, for example, in in uh, private. Now, this is not the only place where I encounter that kind of of uh, dichotomy, but maybe you maybe you've encountered that that some people, maybe even us, sometimes, can be very different people in our social media online persona than we would dare to be in person. Right? I don't know if you've experienced. That. Or, or even more broadly, just a sense that, that we, we might tend to behave differently when we are alone than when, than when we are in the company of others whose opinions that we care about. Again, when that happens, that's not just death above us. That, that hypocrisy, that two-facedness, that lack of integrated uh, living, right? Lack of integrity in living. That's, that's the work of the flesh. Right? The way of death within us. Now, there's certainly more that can be said, and, and we'll get around to some of that here by the time that we are, by the time that we're done. But it, it's worth thinking about, right? In what ways are we perhaps giving ourselves today to the way of folly, to the way of death? Where might you or I be making small compromises, right? That are that are, that, are, that are making just the next step, right? The next progressive step in the direction of the way of foolishness. The way of death is sneaky. 
The way of foolishness is subtle. It, it, it can be easy to rationalize any given decision because the way that the drift occurs, right, it's not, it's not 100 degrees, 180 degrees overnight instantaneously. It's a degree at a time. It's incremental. And, and the enemy intends for it to work that way. Why? So we won't notice, right? Slow and subtle. Be very easy to, to rationalize that kind of trajectory of drift because we don't know what's going on. I had a student one time, it wasn't Oscar. Oscar doesn't know this student. This student doesn't live in California anymore. It was years ago. I had a student one time in class who got really irritated with me because we were getting ready to take a quiz <clears throat> and I made the offhanded comment, just, just encouraging them to have integrity, right, on the, on, the, on the little test they were about to take. I made the offhanded comment, something like, uh, you know, hey, if you guys, if you make yourself comfortable with cheating on a quiz today, that's taking a step in the direction of becoming the kind of person who perhaps on another day would make themselves com comfortable with cheating on a spouse. And this guy got, I mean, he was, it was like, it was, it was, it was visually exasperated. You know, the hands went up. Oh, I can't believe, like, he even, even, even spoke, I can't believe you would say that. Those things are a million miles apart, Professor. Okay. <clears throat> Those two different forms of sin might, in fact, be different way stations on the path that leads to folly and death, right? We can distinguish them. They're different points on the way station. But here's the point. They are on the same path. And progressing down that path makes a person more comfortable tomorrow or next week or next month or next year with something that may seem unfathomable to him or her today. What about life? So we, right? So there's, there's external and internal dimensions to, to the dilemma of death. And, and we need those, both of those aspects, right? The external attacks and the internal attraction to be defeated. And the good news in the book of Proverbs is that the external and internal features of death are countered by the external and internal features of life. Uh, Proverbs 13, 14 <clears throat> says that the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Okay, so we've already seen that, that true wisdom does not merely accord with the way that seems right to man. It comes in this passage, Proverbs 13, 14, it comes from outside of us, right? Uh, the teaching of the wise is, is something that, that, that we are subjected to, that we, that we receive. It's given by God's revelation initially and then transmitted by faithful disciples, by wise disciples. I don't, I don't create it. Uh, I, I simply receive it. Right? There's an external authority rooted in Scripture that, 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 that's passed on in the form of the teaching of the wise that, that I submit to. Right? It's external to me. And I receive it. But notice in that verse, Proverbs 13, 14, that once received, once the, once the teaching of the wise 
is received, it also, that's external, but it also does something internally to the one who receives it, right? It, 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 the teaching of the wise is a fountain that one may turn away from the snares of death. In other words, when I receive this, when I embrace this, it awakens and enlivens the receiver to turn away from the snares of death. The external and internal elements of life are both, are both necessary and both gracious. Again, it's coordinated, isn't it? There's the external reception. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't see enough. I don't know enough. I must have the wisdom of, of, of the one who sees and knows, not just far better than me, but who sees and knows all. Receive that wisdom as, as his authority and then watch it do its work internal to me as well. Okay, now, so we get, it, we, we get a gesture in the book of Proverbs how the internal and external elements of life answer the internal and external elements of, of death, but, but that leads us to, to look for more, doesn't it, right? And, and in particular, the hope that Proverbs awakens Christ fulfills. We want to know, how does that happen? How does that work, right? And the answer is, not surprisingly, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the definitive expression of the wisdom of God, and he is the one who both uniquely and finally answers both the external attack of death and the problem of our internal attraction to it. Okay. So, so Proverbs lights the way, right? It casts the foreshadow passage like uh, Proverbs 14, 14.32 says that the righteous finds refuge in his death. That's good news. But how? How does the righteous find refuge in his death? The answer is that in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we find that he conquers both external attack and the finality of death. So, so Hebrews, I'm thinking of a passage, uh, Hebrews 2, uh, 14 and 15. Really all of Hebrews 2, but but just to zero in on verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Jesus does in the incarnation to conquer both the external attack of death and the finality of death. Uh, author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing. So flesh and blood takes on a human nature, right? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't that fascinating? So, so God the Son is eternally invincible to the attack of death. Can't die. What does he do? I mean, th- th- this, this, is, this is a step, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's incalculable self-humbling isn't it? He takes on a nature, ours, that is capable of suffering the penalty of death so that he can bear that penalty in our place and deliver us from the just consequences of our many steps along the path of foolishness leading to death. It's amazing that he made himself vulnerable to that attack. So he delivers us 
from the external attack of death and the finality of death. But he also, Jesus also shows us how we can become increasingly freed internally from our, our, uh, the attraction of our flesh to the way of foolishness and the way of death, how we can do that today even. Um, sometimes, right, we, we, we've already talked about the fact that we can compartmentalize who we are in public from who we are in private, uh, lack integration uh, in, our, in our living, be, be inconsistent in our, in our personhood. You, you, you could never say that of Jesus, could you? It's not something that can be said of Jesus. He never walked a path that was disintegrated, sometimes faithful, sometimes unfaithful. Jesus was the same in what he said and what he did. So he tells his disciples in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then, when he's hanging on a cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus was the same in private as he was in public. Again, when hanging on a cross, he did not summon a legion of angels to deliver him from his oppressors, though he could have, right? Death had no intrinsic claim on him. He could have, he could have called on a legion of angels to deliver himself. What he couldn't do is deliver himself and deliver you and me, right? It's either or. He either bears the penalty and so delivers us or escapes the penalty and so delivers himself. In public, in the very public eye, he did not do that. He did not self-protect. He did not look out for number one. But he also didn't do that in the privacy of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? In the privacy of the Garden of Gethsemane, in the dark of night, when nobody was around except for some sleeping disciples who would never have been any the wiser, he could have hightailed it and ran. And he didn't do that. And he gave himself, right, voluntarily to those who would persecute him unjustly. In both cases, what he says and what he does, in private and in public, Jesus was riveted on the glory of God and the good of sinners. And, in he, and as he did that, right, he's literally proving himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. So how can we learn to walk a little bit more like that. Here's the application. Uh, first, the first thing I want to, uh, first application I want to make is perhaps there's somebody who is, who's with us this morning who has never embraced the way of life in the person of Christ, the way of wisdom in the person of Christ. If that's you, the very simple exhortation to you today is don't delay. Don't put it off any longer. Do it today. Come to Christ today. Embrace the way of life the way of wisdom, the beauty of Christ, do it today. Sometimes people, uh, I, I guess young people, have sometimes been known to say things like, oh, I know Christ is an important person, need to get around to the business of dealing with him eventually, but I want to sow my wild oats while I'm young, and then I'll deal with Jesus later. That's a foolish statement, isn't it? Because again, that statement assumes that I can walk a while on the path that leads to destruction and not be changed into a person who is more comfortable on that path. It says, I can sow my wild oats and reasonably assume I'll come to my senses later on down the road. It's not like, right? Apart from a work, a miraculous work of the Spirit of God, that's the more time I spend on the road that leads to death, the more comfortable I'm going to be on that road. 
and the less likely I'm going to be eager to forsake that road. The way of folly dulls us, right? It changes us into people who are more and more at home there until it turns out often to be too late. So, if that's you, if you've never come to Christ, I know that there, I know there are people here, Oscar, myself, uh, people who've led worship this morning, would love to talk with you. I'll, I'll be around after the service. What does that even mean to abandon the, the way of folly for the way that leads to, to life and the way that leads to Christ? We'd love to answer questions. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to offer you some encouragement. Okay, uh, second application. What if, what if you have embraced the way of life? What if you have come to Christ? You are a Christian, but like the rest of us, you find yourself struggling in between the first day and the final day, right? Somewhere here, so somewhere in between the first day of faith and the final day, and there's you know struggle. What what, what do you do then? Um, I have three uh, quick, hopefully helpful encouragements. For you okay so here's number one it's the it's it's the most obvious um, but but I think it bears pointing out in any case so uh, encouragement number one to this particular group is that continuing on the path of life requires walking on that path day in and day out okay so like I said it's not a very profound observation but think of it like this let's say that uh, let's say that 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 somebody here had the bucket list goal to walk from uh, across America from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, probably nobody has that, that goal, but let's just say for, exa- for, for the sake of argument that somebody did. Okay? If the goal was to walk across, across the United States of America, you can't do that in one day. I don't care how fast of a walker you are, or you can even run. You're not doing it in one day. But you can set a trajectory in one day, right? By what you do today, you can make tomorrow's walk easier or more difficult, right? A, 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 little, a, a little more likely to lean into or a little more likely to run from. So here's, 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 the, here's the point on this observation, right? Um, you and I, we, we can't do yesterday's faithfulness. That's, that ship has sailed. And we can't do tomorrow's faithfulness because it's not here yet, but we can do today's faithfulness. What does the step of today's faithfulness look like for you? Again, that'd be a good thing to spend some time perhaps in prayer over this afternoon. Um, if, if you're married, maybe, maybe you, you know, you guys, one of the things you can do in marriage, you can, you can, you can uh, as a spouse, you can serve one another as a mirror for the other person, right? And, and, and you can ask, hey, you know, what, where, where do you see a place that I could benefit from, from another step of growth and grace? You know what? Your, your spouse would probably be delighted that you asked that question and probably have some insight, too, or not a spouse, friend. What, what, maybe, it's, maybe it's recommitting to a scripture memory plan or, a, or, a, or you know, read the New Testament over the summer plan or coming back for the the members meeting on the 18th. You know, people get tired of staring at screens and looking at Zoom, but it's an important part of the body life of the church. And so committing to walk in the context of communities. I, I imagine for many of you, it's praying for your over your pastoral transition and who the next shepherd right of this, of this flock would be. So, you know, 
What is that? By God's grace, try to identify that. And then do that. Do today's faithfulness. You can do tomorrow's tomorrow. Observation number two. Continuing in the path of life requires hearing and heeding. Hearing and heeding. So these kind of correspond to external and internal dimensions. Right? We've got to hear the word of God. So we hear this external word or, or read it, right? Uh, but, but also heed it. Hear it and, and heed it. We must hear it. It's a word that comes from outside of us. But we must heed it in a way that submits to it. In fact, the, the, the scriptures actually will, will talk about the fact, and Oscar even mentioned this in his prayer, there, there's a kind of hearing that isn't hearing at all, Right? If the word isn't received, he prayed that the people of grace would be not only hearers of the word, but doers also, right? And so there's a kind of hearing that if it's not embraced and it doesn't bear fruit in one's life, it betrays the fact that the word wasn't really, um, wasn't really heard. Again, there's got to be a connecting up of the two, the external and the internal. Uh, and then thirdly, Right, third third uh, application here is that continuing in the path of life. So f- last one was hearing and heeding. This one is that it requires treasuring and trusting Jesus. Treasuring and trusting Jesus. Treasuring Jesus, so, so finding him delightful, right? Faithful, reliable, satisfying. Treasuring Jesus is what fuels trusting Jesus when the internal conflicts are difficult and the external flows may be, uh, foes sorry, maybe even seem overwhelming. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate the treasure of Jesus? Almost done here. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 uses an expression. He talks about, he talks about something he calls the eyes of the heart. Eyes of the heart. Now, we've already, right, the heart, right, in the, in the biblical frame of reference is sort of the control center of the person. So, you know, he's not just talking about the uh, muscle that beats in the, in the chest cavity. But, but, but he, he's using this metaphor to, to, to talk about the, the ability that the heart has to perceive, right, certain, certain truths. How do we cultivate the treasuring of Christ? Here's a couple of, of suggestions. One, one, we use the eyes of the heart to behold Jesus, right? The one on whom death has no claim as he refuses to flee death's curse for us. That, 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 that will increase my treasuring of Jesus when I see that he has every right to look out for himself and refuses to do so. We use what Paul calls the eyes of the heart to gaze or behold, right? In meditation, uh, we're, not, we're not like vis- physically seeing, but but spiritually seeing, that's, that's kind of the point there, to perceive and to behold Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop so that death's claim on us is finished. If I perceive that, if I behold that, if I meditate on that, my treasure of Christ goes up, so too then does my trust of Christ. This, this uh, perceiving with the eyes of the heart uh, Paul, in another passage, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So he talks about beholding. He's thinking with the eyes of the heart, the glory of Jesus, and says when we do that, 
we fix our eyes on Jesus in that sense, we become transformed increasingly, path of life, right, into his likeness. Now, here's the, so, so the principle of the eyes of the heart in 2 Corinthians 3.18 can be boiled down to this. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold, and there are no exceptions to the rule. Everybody does this, whether they know they're doing this or not. There's all kinds of things that our hearts can behold, call that treasure, that are deadly for us. And there's one that gives life. If I, I, I thought about putting a, a PowerPoint image up, but it was just one, and I don't think it's necessary. But if, if you remember um, <clears throat> from The Lord of the Rings by, uh, by Tolkien, the final book, uh, The Return of the King, if, if you saw the film... There, they, I, th I thought this is a, a scene that was particularly well done. There's a scene right at the end. I uh, hope I'm not spoiling it for you, <laughs> but uh, you had your chance to read it if you haven't read it yet. Um, right at the end, Frodo is standing at the edge of the crack of Mount Doom, and he's fighting with Gollum over the Ring of Power, right? And, and Gollum finally gains the Ring of Power, but as he does, his foot slips, and he's falling into the lava of the cracks of Mount Doom. He, he, he's literally going to his destruction. But as he falls, the ring is falling with him, and he reaches out for it. He's going to his death, and his face is just lit up with glee. He, he's, okay, why? Because that's his treasure. He has become ensnared by it. And, and, and Tolkien does a really nice job, literarily and visually, that the, the filmmakers did, of, of portraying the way that consumption changes Gollum even physically. Not just, they, 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 show, they show the internal effects of his corruption externally. They do a nice job of that, don't they? So, so the, right? Nobody's exempt from this. Most people don't know what's happening, but nobody's exempt from having something in their lives exert command on the control center of their life because that has become the preoccupying uh, concern of their heart's gaze, of their heart's treasure. It could be, it could be money. Um, it, could be, it could be fear of man in, in, in the sense of wanting some other person or persons to think well of you that you just struggle and try time and again to win that approval. All kinds of ways uh, that, uh, that, that we can experience succumbing to that control in, in, with, with effects that are very destructive. But here's the good news. Well, there's all kinds of ways that that can be done in a deadly fashion. There is a way. Right? The, 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 the answer to that problem is not not doing it. Not, it's not avoiding it altogether, but it's finding the one who's worthy of our trust. The one who is worthy of our treasure. That is Jesus Christ. And that kind of beholding is how we want to conclude uh, this morning. We're going to turn it over now to, uh, to some final worship. And as we do... Right? My prayer for you and for us as we, do, as, we, as we go into that time of worship is that that would be used as a moment to stir those affections of the heart, to treasure Jesus increasingly as he deserves, and so walk out of here trusting him increasingly as he deserves.